Stay in tune with all things sports around Indiana and the nation with the Crash Course Podcast. Each week, we tackle the big storylines from the world of the Colts, Pacers, and the Indiana College scene, while also keeping a pulse on the nation. We record live weekly at twitch.tv slash 3C Media, and can be found on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever podcasts can be heard, you can catch the Crash Course Podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by the COO of Amigo Games, Alex Yeager. He's been around the industry for quite some time, has some great selection of games that I've never heard of, and he has some accomplishments that most people cannot claim to have. Thanks for listening. Legend Board Game. I'm your host, Adam Collins, and with me today is the COO of Amigo Games, Alex Yeager. Alex, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Appreciate the uh, opportunity to come along and chit-chat uh, today. Oh, well, I, you know, we, I, I try to find people all over the industry. Uh, I try to find people from different companies. Amigo Games is one of my favorite gaming companies because... You guys go after like some of the old classic games that are old Spiel des Jahres winners and keep them in production. And I really appreciate that because Heimlich and Company and Escape from uh, Haunted Mansion are, are two of the, the most entertaining games to break out and show people because they're from like the 80s and yet you wouldn't even know it. And uh, I just greatly appreciate. I, I wish you guys would go after more of the old Shield Ars games that seem to be out of print. That's what that should be like your main focus. If I could throw one thing at you, <laughs> there are a lot of games, and, and ultimately, you know, you realize that uh, things like Bonanza, which is going on 25th anniversary, you know, that started at Amigo, that has been with Amigo the whole time. Things like No Thanks is coming up oh. on, a, on, a, on a big anniversary. Take Five, we're yep. about to go into it. I think Saboteur is about to do its 20th anniversary. You know, and those are ones that started at Amigo and have been with Amigo throughout. Amigo is one of the companies that has done a remarkable job, you know, over the 40 years it has been around of, of finding and developing games that can stand the test of time. And uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Uwe Moltier, who was a, uh, an editor at Amigo for a very long time. And he was there for that heyday of he's the one that signed Bonanza and take five and, you know, just an incredible output of, 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 you know, of games that, that, you know, had his name, his, his imprint on them. And uh, so, you know, I've been working with Amigo when I was with Mayfair, even as a, as a licensor for almost 20 years. And there are people that are at the company that have been there for, 20 plus years as employees it's really remarkable in the industry in the hobby game industry to find people that can not only have a job but can have a job that has been sustained over that length of time and so it's a terrific company to to be working for and i i, I love every day i i'm telling you no thanks i came across that i do a lot of reading which is again we talked earlier that's how i come across so many different people that i'm like oh my gosh i gotta talk to this guy and that guy and this person and that person and this woman and that woman and came across no thanks is like this game sounds awesome 
And then it was at like a, a Target hanging on a peg next to Uno for like seven bucks. And I'm like, well, it'd be stupid not to buy this game. And so I bought it and I'm like, oh my gosh, what an amazing game with like, what, 32 cards and some chits or uh, tokens? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Holy cow. Every da- Everybody I show that game to, they're just like, where do I get this? I'm like, Target. Just hanging next to Uno. Know, game stores, all sorts. Of, yeah, I mean, it's really, and and one of the, and, and we really do try. There's a, on all of the family level games that we publish, uh, there's a set of four icons we put on the back of them. And one of those icons is five rules or less. We're literally, <laughs> I could teach you this game in five core rules or less in some instances. And, and it's, and it's, you know, some people just can't understand until they actually encounter something like, no, thanks that there is still a tremendous amount of gameplay there for as few moving parts as there are in the rule book. Oh man. I just, I just took it to work and was playing with my coworkers at lunch and I won the game and all I had was a run from 28 to 35. Nice. That's all I had, but I had like fifteen yep. tokens, and so my score was like thirteen. And I'm like, that's hard to beat. But yes, I could sit there. I could just sit there and wait because nobody's going to take that thirty-two. I mean, what are you going to do? Take the thirty-two so that I don't? Okay. Yep. I'll just sit back <laughs> and wait. And they're like, what? And so you just see the tokens piling up, and I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And then take five. Um, that's uh, Wolfgang Kramer, right? Yep, that is indeed. Yeah, well, that's on my list. I haven't got around to it yet. Uh, my wife tells me I have too many board games. I just tell her I don't have enough shelf space. That's the there's a just a different way to look at the same problem, right? But it's a card game, so a little, yeah. little card yeah. game. You have yeah. room for a little card yeah. game, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so uh, I do love Wolfgang Kramer. Um, my goodness, he's had some some amazing games in his time. Well, uh. I'm looking company was his and oh my gosh, (laughs) that game's a hoot. (laughs) I'm terrible at it. I never win, but man, I love to play it. (laughs) How did you know I was Italy? I didn't even like, I just moved everything all willy nilly. Oh no, man. You subconsciously were, we're moving Italy. Right. And I'm like, was I? I... (laughs) Well, that's weird. it was funny. Last time I played it, I think I had I ended up having to leave the game part way, and I put my stuff down, and I said, uh, and basically it said, "I'm." I, I just kind of made the random announcement, you know, I'm going to win, and sure enough, you know, they they finished out that third round. I won, and they had no idea how, and it was like, well, you already think I'm this other person, so you're going to move this other one. A whole bunch, you know, whatever country I was, you're going to move them because you already think that I'm this other company. So I can leave now. You're just going to let me, you know, you're going to help me win. And I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So. (laughs) Oh, man. So, Alex, how did you get into gaming? Um, It's it's a long story. So I'll give you the the long version of the short version, which is in uh, I'm certainly through high school. Um, I got connected up with a game, you know, kind of a small game group. Uh, it wasn't anything regular. It was just sort of a group of people who played games. And we played uh, we played Illuminati and a lot of Cosmic Encounter, the old Eon edition, which I still have my well-loved, pretty much roached out at this point, uh, Eon edition uh, Cosmic Encounters, which no one barely would want to touch at this point. But, you know, it's, it's kind of that touchstone 
for everything that came after that. Then in 1990, you know, I did some role playing in, in high school and in college. So I kind of had that experience as well. But in 95, when uh, Illuminati New World Order, the collectible card version of Illuminati came out, I went down that rabbit hole hard. Um, I have 0.6% of the limited edition run of that game in my house. <laughs> you know, rounding up, I have one out of every hundred cards. They did the limited edition run of that game uh, sitting upstairs in my closet. And, and I really, really, really was intrigued and fascinated by that game. Even more, you know, because I had done a little magic on the side and some stuff like that. This was my game. This was my jam. And so I got connected up with the Steve Jackson folks at that point and did, you know, was doing a little bit of playtesting for them. I was volunteered when they started the MIB program in 97. I was one of the, the, the charter MIBs in that program. I was uh, at Origins or Gen Con, whenever it was, it was released. And uh, was part of the team that was selling Munchkin for the very first time into the public. Um, and even that's one of my game design credits I have in the industry is I did a my pitch for that very first uh, very first show that they had Munchkin at because I had basically a one minute pitch which became a thing called One Minute Munchkin which became the retailer demo kit for Munch Munchkin I mean, they've done a couple of them but they always credit me for the the design of sort of the the, the little <laughs> retailer kits that's awesome. Um, Based based on my based on my one minute munchkin I did for them so that was so, so that was connecting me to Steve Jackson started doing a little playtesting for them when Cheap Ass Games founded Mark One I was one of the founding uh, you know uh, you know uh, founding uh, you know rabbits rabbits for them uh, and then uh, our demo monkeys and then uh, and then because uh, rabbits was uh, Looney Labs and then eventually. I connected up with the, the Mayfair was uh, Will Niebling, who was the CEO of Mayfair at the time, uh, who lives here in Ann Arbor, where I you know near where I do, and started doing some stuff for Mayfair. Uh, had my audition where we did UK, uh, we did uh, UK Gen Con, and Essen in two thousand four. Got hired that next spring, and was with Mayfair until it was sold, and then a uh, couple of years with Steve Jackson Games, and now I'm with Amigo. It's awesome, but I mean, started what... as volunteer. I mean, there you, there you go. So many people don't under, they underestimate that volunteering and, you know, volunteering with a game company is a great way to get in and get to know people and start your, your start. Your it's a critical way. And, and it's not only the fact that you're volunteering for the company because you love a game, you know, it's like, wow, I really like Catan. So I want to volunteer for, for, uh, you know, for Catan or Asmodee in this instance. And that's fine. That's a, you know, we have lots of volunteers that that's, they're here kind of casually. They want to play their favorite game, you know, with a bunch of people and that's cool. Um, what the opportunity that volunteering does is you get to see a little glimpse of what the business mechanisms of a game company look like. So it's not just, I'm here to demo a game. You get to see, well, here's how we have to set the booth every morning. This is how we have to, you know, this is our schedule to make sure that everyone gets done. This is what uh, shocking and, you know, stocking and shelving looks like as part of a booth. And you get to see it up close. You know, are we, you know, how, how quickly are things selling? What are we doing to be able to keep flow in the booth? How are we attracting people to do our demos? And all of those things, if you are paying attention as a volunteer, are things that can serve you if you decide you really do want to make a career out of this. 
you get those first glimpses of all these elements of what it takes to put on a convention appearance by being in that booth and being around the people that have to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a small game publishing company that I, I run with my uh, friend and we've got a bunch of booths uh, for the next, for uh, got a couple coming up in July, one in October. Um, you know, we're not at Gen Con, obviously the uh, <laughs> wait list for that's a bit long and a bit expensive for us. So, Yes, it is. But, but, you know, we do. We walk around to the other booths, see how everybody else is doing it, kind of how can we how can we mimic that? How can we use what they're doing that's working well for them and, and apply that to our small booth? So speaking of conventions, welcome back to the convention scene, right? Indeed. Both uh, <laughs> both the professional ones, our distributor shows and and uh, gift shows, as well as the uh, the regular consumer circuit. And that's one of the things that Amigo really has kind of has a foot in two different worlds, because, yes, we sell into hobby and with distributors and all the sort of familiar ways that people know how to get games or, or kind of aware of. But we also uh, play, you know, we also have do a lot of business with mass market with our sales groups. So we have sales groups that send out rep representatives, uh, you know, buyers throughout the U S to specialty toy stores and to, you know, sort of the, 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 uh, you know, children's toy stores uh, to sell our games. And it's a very different sort of thing. And it's a very different convention circuit to be able to attend those. So really everything's firing up. And, and in the case of us, you know, me, when I was hired in, in uh, 2020, uh, you know, I had never done a lot of those, certainly never done any of the gift shows. I've done obviously things like New York Toy Fair and some of the the, the non-consumer side shows that Mayfair had done. But, you know, it's been very interesting kind of seeing these come back. And those are obviously different than they were, you know, in the before time as well. So everyone's sort of feeling their way around as to you know, what, the, <laughs> what the new normal is at these shows. But yeah. yes, they are starting to occur fast and furious again. Yeah, I, I I went to Geekway here in St. Louis uh, in May. Um, that was a good one. And I will be out at CantCon in Kansas City here uh, at the end of July. So I'll probably be back out to the other one in November. And then uh, one in Cincinnati. Um, so just, you know, trying to stay close, stay on the the... the the cheaper ones, the more, not cheaper as much as more affordable ones. Let's put it that way. Um, we don't have a huge offering. There's, there's a borderline that small companies have to, to have to kind of, you know, you always have that idea of, oh, it would be great to go to Origins or go to Gen Con. And for, for almost anybody, even a large company, um, you know, you get, you get to those shows and what you're dealing with is a marketing expense, not really a sales opportunity. I mean, yes, you can sell games, but you will never make enough money to make up for your presence at those shows and all the staff you have to bring and all the events you have to run and everything you need to do in order to make those shows happen. I mean, we at Mayfair regularly uh, cleared, you know, we would we would regularly hit about that six-digit mark on sales, and that was 25% maybe 
of what we were spending to attend those shows between sponsorships and staff and hotel rooms and food and and all the things that that kind of feed into that. So ultimately you get to a big show like that and you're looking at 25 to 50% of your of your sales you know that's then your of your expenses may be covered by sales. So it makes a lot more sense if you want to go to a small show where you can get a, a table for $50 or $100 or something and actually have an opportunity to turn a profit. That's There's no shame in that at all. That is a terrific way to not lose a lot of money and not go uh, have a bunch of stuff piled up on a credit card uh, You know, as a small publisher. Take advantage of those smaller opportunities where you've got uh, you, you're kind of the bigger fish in a smaller pond uh, as well as just not having to spend the kind of money you have to do to, to go to a big show. Yeah. And we've, we've been lucky too working with some other small St. Louis ones. We've kind of banded together and became the St. Louis small games publishers. And we kind of travel as a group. So we kind of split the cost two or three ways, depending on how many of us are going, which also helps keep the, keep the expense down uh, individual to the individual gaming company. So um, yeah, we were happy with Geekway. We had a good time. Um, you know, it's, it was good to go back and just see a whole bunch of people out there playing games again. Um, I missed that. So. I really would like to visit Geekway at some point. It, it, it's a show that I really enjoy St. Louis as well. So the opportunity to uh, to do a show there, and one that a lot of people talk about as being a really good show. It's just uh, a great place to, to go. Game. Yeah, just a great place to go play games. And uh, we this year, I'm trying to think, I think I played six or seven new games. So not as many as I have in the past, but I can't argue with six or seven games. So now some of them we played multiple times each. I'm not going to lie. There were some really good ones that we were like, wow, let's keep playing this game. So, yeah. And, and playing in live is, you know, very much a, a, you know, a thing again. And that's, you know, sometimes you're just going to appreciate that a little bit more, even if the count is less, it's face to face, which is that much uh, more appreciated. Absolutely. You can only do so much. Uh, you know, we did a lot. We do a lot of rolling rights and flipping rights and stuff like that over Zoom or whatever with my friends. But there's it's a little different when you're sitting across the table from them and you just <laughs> they got that board in the middle. And it's just, you know, it's a whole different feel. Yep. And it, was, it was a good one to have back. So I'm not going to complain. Maybe we'll cross paths uh, at, a, at a convention yet later this year. Possibly. <laughs> so uh you said you're out of michigan up there and are you in the uh the main part of the upper peninsula oh no, no no we're down here we're down here outside of ann arbor we're in a okay. a little uh a neighboring community called ypsilanti or poor man's ann arbor is what we like to call it <laughs> um we don't necessarily like to call it ypsitucky but uh it's kind of yeah it's kind of the vibe sometimes but uh we are uh you know, so it's uh, yes, we have so we have this very very weird name, which is uh, actually a uh, uh, a uh, civil war, uh, not civil war, a uh, revolutionary uh, war general and, and a hero of the Greek uh, of the of, of the of the Greek nation, who uh, has has ties to this area and and uh, we are named after them and we uh, so our claims of fame are that um, a, a nice vibrant little food and and scene because basically you can open up a store in Ypsilanti cheaply and then if you if the concept works then you can go downtown to ann arbor and you know pay the exorbitant rents and the and the city taxes and all that sort of thing so well yeah. But you get, yeah you get to test your theory first you know it's a proof of concept Absolutely. before you yeah why not yeah so if i'm so what is that it's probably 
trying to think. Ann Arbor is what, about six hours from St. Louis? You gotta, uh, seven and a half. I used to I used yeah. to go to school in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, so that was about a five and a half hour drive. And so another two down to St. Louis or so. Did you go to uh, Indiana State or Rose-Hulman? Uh, I went to Rose-Hulman Institute of Technology. Did not graduate from there, but I started my first uh, <laughs> two or three years there. So I went to Purdue. Oh, okay. Yeah, right up the go. road. Right up the road. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as you said you went to you went to school in Terre Haute, I'm like, mm, you either went to Rose-Hulman or Indiana State. That's right. Uh, yeah, and depending on and, you know, and certainly in my era, um, if I'm male, there's only two choices. If you were if you were female, there were two other choice. It was in ISU or a, um, there was a a small, I think it's a religious college. Would would something another state? I think that's that's there as well. So at the time that I went, Rose Holman was all male. So it was, uh, you know, those are my two choices for Indiana state or, or, uh, or, uh, that. And Indiana state was always humorous because, and I know we're really digressing here, but, um, Indiana, Indiana state always, and, and this gives you sort of that inferiority complex that I think that university has sometimes was they always made a big deal that their education majors had one of the highest average incomes uh, of any of any school in the nation, and what they neglect to point out is that one of those education majors was named Larry Bird. Yeah, yeah. And they threw his salary in with everybody else's. Bring that, you know, bring that number up ten, fifteen thousand dollars across the entire school, and that was that was the thing. So it was always like, you know, education majors at ISU do really well, particularly if your last name is Bird. Yeah, you did so, really well uh, as an education major if you also happen to play in the NBA. Exactly. And yes. win a lot of championships. Yeah. <laughs> like Indeed. a lot of like a lot of money. I actually uh, waited tables at Steak and Shake uh, just outside Indianapolis where I grew up. And he came into that Steak and Shake one day uh, when he was coaching the uh, Pacers. And it's like, oh, my God, Larry Bird? It's steak and shake. <laughs> Our manager, uh, who didn't do much, but he sure as heck waited that table. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing how suddenly I'm not. I'm not. It's not beneath me to serve a table. You know, yeah, somebody I really, really want to meet. How, how'd that happen? You know. Uh, so if I did make the seven and a half hour drive up to uh, Michigan, what game is currently sitting on your table? What game are you currently playing? Oh my. Um, so literally sitting on my table right now, I have, uh, prototypes. <laughs> I have, uh, I am, I'm kind of going back and retroactively picking up some of the time stories, uh, things before those go, uh, gooey kablooey. Uh, those are now on clearance. I just got my soul forge Kickstarter, uh, stuff. So we're going to dig into that. I'm quite the Ascension fan. Uh, and so I'm eager to see what, uh, what uh, they've come up with as far as that game goes. Uh, also within arm's reach would be um, some odds and ends from Origins. My uh, all the expansions <laughs> for Picture Perfect. Uh, I've got. Uh, no, I think I've still got Golem sitting around. Gartenbau, uh, Gartenbau, and Transmissions were my were my two plays over the weekend. Uh, Gartenbau was a twenty fifth twenty fifth century games. Uh, they uh, had it out at uh, Origins. I think it was. Uh, I think it was a Kickstarter. They had Kickstarter copies there, which is kind of a rondelle 
uh, rondel uh, tile placement game and transmissions which is sort of a run around the board neutral pieces and try and uh, create engines so with marvelous little marvelous little robot pieces so uh, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a mix of stuff, you know, a little bit of work Silston here, like I said, with the prototypes and whatnot. So sure. there's there's definitely some amigo uh, out there, but uh, we'll really we'll really get to dig in our our, our next. Uh, this is sort of the breather period for us, but we will be digging into our 2023 schedule uh, with uh, a Gen Con. Our folks from Germany will be over. They'll be bringing prototypes of all the new stuff, and we'll be actually sitting down and playing them together for the first time there that'll be awesome that would it be always awesome. is i bet i bet yeah i uh just been so uh i got covid i should be on vacation right now but i got covid last week had to cancel my vacation Ooh. and so um yeah i gave it to everybody in the family too i figured why not right it's, you know christmas in june yeah. um and uh, so I went through a lot of the games that I picked up at Geekway um, with my son. And I was like, we just, I mean, we had COVID, why not? So we just laid the mat out between us and uh, fired up some games from uh, from Geekway that I picked up. So, like I said, the silver lining, <laughs> the silver lining of COVID. The COVID has been a very tricky dance to do here over the last, you know, really since, you know, October last year. Uh, with you know you know or September you know with Gen Con and Origins and and all of that and um, you know I think there are a lot of people that have you know are on both sides of the inconvenience of wearing a mask but for those of us who are required to be there and required to be kind of fixed points in time um, how much we still appreciate that mask mandate to be in effect like in a dealer's room. Um, well, certainly we're taking it off when we go to eat, but those are circumstances that I feel like I can control a little bit more. So I've been, you know, we've been eating out at a lot of places that have patios. We've been eating, you know, taking stuff back to the room. We had a small suite at Origins where I could control a little bit of the number of people, um, you know, and when we've had outbreaks at a lot of these shows, and certainly I've just come from two shows between Origins and and Astra, which is sort of a a specialty toy show. Um, you know, there were outbreaks there, but again, you had events where, you know, you would put a thousand people in a room and that sounds great. It sounds fun. Yay. We're all back, but that's where everyone had their mask off and was, was, you know, was doing that. And where that, if there was an opportunity to spread, it didn't, there were several people that I know for a fact uh, got COVID that I interacted with both at Origins and at Astra. And in both cases, um, we were fortunate that because of the mask mandates in place, we both had masks on. And despite that contact, you know, I've been fortunate so far and, you know, tests, you know, tests can be wrong, but so far all the tests have come back negative and that's, you know, it looks very different when you're, when you're in your mid fifties or older as some of our, some of our game industry uh, Titans are, uh, to say, hey, you know, let's just not worry about masks at all and kind of let chips fall where they may. Um, you know, for at my age, you know, at least when, you know, initially in the pandemic, I, you know, for me, it was roll a one, two, or three on a 100-sided die, and I die. Yeah. And I don't want to roll, I just don't want to roll the die in the first place is what that comes down to. Sure. And so whatever I can do to minimize that risk and take care of those those small things along the way, you know, so much the better. And that's just, you know, again, I, I really do appreciate those people that recognize that, you know, if we're working in a booth, 
we get to talk to, we have to, you know, we talk to anybody that wants to walk up and talk to us in whatever state they're in, whatever condition of health they are. And, you know, so it's been, it's been good to, you know, I said, we've been good to be able to do what we can to avoid it. And, and even to the point where I haven't had con crud coming out of any of these shows. So, you know, <laughs> masks and washing your hands, who knew? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. It's craziness. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have the concrud coming out of uh, Geekway. I, I guess I didn't think about that till right now. Yeah, I did. I didn't have that two or three days of just whatever the heck that was coming up, and can't complain. Well, you know, it's it's just that it's just that kind of generalized. Whenever you go, so I remember my first time going to Essen, and you know, I'm 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 literally drinking my water bottle in my room, and I read a thread. It's like you know, it's not that the the water in Essen is bad. It's that the microbial mix and what they put in the water and what's there is just a different mix of stuff and your body is likely to react poorly to it. And it's like, Oh, well, that's good to know now. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, so, it, it, you know, building up the tolerance is a good thing as well. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, you get into a situation at those big shows that are international and, you know, you're just, you, it's just everybody's bugs, however benign, are being mixed together into a lovely little bacterial melange. And, and then that covers every surface that you have there. I'm not germaphobic, but, you know, I, I get concrud and it's pretty, you know, it's pretty easy to draw the bright line between concrud and, you know, several tens of thousands of people's worth of uh, low grade, low grade illnesses all dropped in a room at the same time. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. You're all playing games. Everybody's touching everything and you're all touching everything else. And then, <laughs> then you know, ugh, and then they, I, I'll never forget like this article I read way back in high school, maybe middle school about how dirty money is. Just mm-hmm. paper money is so dirty. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It's gross. And you know, <laughs> but we still use it because <clears throat> That's what currency is, I guess, right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, working for Amigo, do you guys uh, play a lot of games over lunch? Um, or is that kind of your break time of not playing games? No, it's 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 really, you know, a lot of what I'm doing uh, with my job has nothing to do with playing games at all. It's a lot of talking to stores and our and our buyers who you know have who are having issues or questions uh it's a lot of planning you know for our ads and whatnot for working with uh cory who's our other person at at amigo you know right now amigo games in the u.s is a two-person shop and there's a lot of stuff that we have to do in order to keep you know all of our balls in the air now we have a tremendous team in germany which is able to do an awful lot of stuff for us as well but at the end of the day um, you know, playing games really is kind of that step away from the from the job. What what we do have the opportunity to play games with our our folks in Germany, and we do that any opportunity that we get. We usually at after at the end of it of it, you know, so we'll go over to Essen, and I'll we'll take a few days on the backside of Essen. We'll visit the offices. We'll play through a bunch of stuff, and and probably have at least one casual game night in there as well. Um, so it's it's frustrating, you know, especially when you know I live in Michigan, Corey lives in Austin, Texas. So there is no face to face 
without a tremendous amount of infrastructure to get everyone together in a room. And even when we get the entire company together, we're talking about a two player game. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really, we really do take advantage as much as we can when we, and we have the Germans that come over when we're over there to be able to sit down and, and play games as much as we can. No, I, I would definitely take advantage of that if I were you. I would take advantage of yep. playing any game anytime I can, which is why I started gaming at lunch with my coworkers in the first place. Was I like to play games and then, you know, found some people that wanted to learn how to play games. And I'm like, well, I just so happen to have a few hundred of them that we can play. So, <laughs> yeah. Now, I remember for a kind of a, a, a public speaking thing at my previous job, which was automotive uh, marketing research. Um, you know, I did a presentation on board games and intrigued enough people that we started that lunch hour gaming and we would do that a couple few times a week. And, and that was, uh, that was a lot of fun and, and people, you know, people are attracted to it. I, I've off, I, I have this thing I kind of tell people is that if I, if you're working with kids, kids get it, kids understand when you say, I'm going to, you know, we're going to play a game. They're like, great. I'm in. I like playing games. <laughs> Um, adults, there are two steps you have to get through to get to the point of a kid, which is number one, you're allowed to play a game. You are, as an adult, this is not demeaning. This is not going to be, you know, juvenile. This is not infantile. This is, this is a thing that adults can do and can have, can enjoy. And then second step, I have chosen a game that is appropriate to you that I think will be interesting, either in mechanism or in theme, and that this is a game that you will be intrigued and will enjoy. And once you get through those two steps and however long and however much explanation you've got to get through to get them to the point of where a seven-year-old will just say, yep, I like games, let's play. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And, you know, that's – so my last company I worked at, we – I, I was just explaining this to my wife a couple nights ago. I brought gamers together, right? A whole bunch of gamers we that all played games outside the office, and I brought them together in the office, and then we just really focused on like those thirty and sixty minute games, games that we could we could play in an hour. That was totally different than my company I'm at now, where I'm like you said, I'm introducing them to games. Not that they don't know what games are, but they don't know this new hobby and hobby games. They don't they don't know what's out there, right? And it is it's been great seeing the growth of the group by them seeing more and more people playing that they are allowed to play. They are allowed to come to the lunch table and play a game. And then now, like you said, I've chosen these games specifically because they're lighthearted fun games that we can play in an hour or less like no thanks that's a huge hit at my office because it i think people it's very approachable right it's just this little deck of cards and little black tokens and it's very approachable um we've had a lot of luck with king of tokyo you know but i'm like how can you not like King of Tokyo? It's rolling dice in your kaiju monsters, beating each other up over the city of Tokyo, you know? And it, I'm not playing the level of depth games that I was playing at my past company, but I'm making new gamers. Now these people are finding games and, oh, have you heard of this game or that game? And 
hey, I have got this game at home. Can we bring it in and play? And I'm like, I will play whatever you bring in. We had a huge game of Uno a couple weeks ago. I don't care. Throw it down. I mean. For a lot of people, yep. For a lot of people, you have that. If Okay, so you have those people that play one game. They play Boggle. They play Scrabble. They play whatever. That's their one game. So you introduce them to something else, and now there are two games that they'll play. And this or that. And ultimately, it feels like for me, four is kind of that magic number where at, if you have four games that you legitimately enjoy, you now, when you're confronted with it's going to be a game session that I have coming up here, you now start to have enough elements to be able to think about, well, how many players are we going to have? How much time are we going to have? How much table space are we going to have? All you know, And you start to think about games more critically, less from the standpoint of I like X game, but from the standpoint of I have so many players or I have so much time and be able to choose a game. And once you get to that point, adding more games into that mix becomes really easy. This becomes, oh, this is part of my two-player game set that I, when I have two players around. Hey, yeah. this is my party game set. Hey, this is my my, my economics game or my, my games that take over an hour sort of thing. And you begin to compartmentalize some of these things in a way that, Again, really kind of kind of accelerates suddenly your your interest in games as a hobby. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah, that's why I tell my wife I need all these four. There there's different reasons why I have every one of these games. <laughs> yeah. But I have the library. Yes. The library. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh but no, it's it is interesting because like when we played we played a lot of Clue. And I love Clue. I think Clue is an underrated, underappreciated game. You know, I mean, that game is, what, 80 years old almost? Because I think it came it came out just post-World War II. So it's coming up on 80 years old, you know. And so we played Clue because a lot of people knew the game of Clue. So I've got all these different versions of Clue, which is just adds a little mechanic here or there. But you take what they know, change it a bit, and now they know a new game or a new mechanic. And now they got that mechanic, so now we can play this game. And it's been kind of fun, like I said, introducing the new games and, and kind of creating like that roadmap of, you know, we want to get to these games, but we got we want to get up there, but, man, we got we to gotta work our way there. We can't just, yeah. you know, jump in. Believe me, if I could bring in uh, – I mean, I, a couple people know Catan, um, but – that one only plays four and we've got a traveling trophy and everybody wants to play for the trophy. So <laughs> we have six or seven players. We need something to play six or seven people. So anyway, so if you did play uh, at lunch, what would be your go-to 60 minute game? A one hour lunchtime game. Well, you know, in the Amiga world, certainly take five, you know, take five, six nymphed. Um, no thanks is there. Um, I really, really like Bonanza. And with a group that knows what they're doing, you can certainly crank that game out in over an hour. I'm just a huge negotiation, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of guy. And, and I, I really, really like that. Back in the Mayfair day, I would pull out something like uh, Pompeii. Because who doesn't like throwing people into volcanoes? Pompeii, um, the same. And that's the same guy that did uh, Carcassonne, right? Klaus Jürgen Reda. That one's within arm's reach. But yeah, yeah. so I haven't. Um, you know, I've and, never and played Pompeii. It's on my list. I want to play it really bad. 
Uh, it is it, such a clever game in that it, there is it's a game of two parts. There's the part of you basically putting all your people out and then the part of fleeing your people. And both of those parts of those games are so different, yet they come together so well and create such an interesting game. It's one of the, it's one of my, you know, it's one of those games that I'm, I'm still amazed uh, hasn't been picked up you know, almost instantly by another company because it's still as good a game you know, and it's one of those games that kids love it. You know, kids are like, don't throw me in the volcano, daddy. And then, of course, it's throwing daddy in the volcano. Yeah. Throwing daddy in the volcano. Well, you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but don't you work for a publishing company? Yeah, I've a couple down the line. Yeah, that's a thing. So, yeah. I mean, I want to um, play Pompeii. Um, yeah, I'm, I think uh, we've got a couple places around here in St. Louis that you can go uh, kind of play test some some older games so i'm gonna see next time i go out there i'll see if they got it but beyond that as well you know i really like i really like star realms Uh, it's such an easy game to drop on a table um the any of the any of the ganshones uh you know ganshon clever dry you know all, all of them you know Third, third one's one I wouldn't be pulling out casually, but certainly I can get anyone up to speed on on that or Bravo or or Quicks or any of the you know a lot of those rolling rights. Oh yeah, uh, you know, Quicks, really, Quinto. Are so easy to kind of get rocking. Oh yeah, though um, rolling rights became really big to me over the pandemic because I could play them over Zoom. Uh, all you need is everybody's got to have the scoreboard and a set of dice, and you can go for it. Uh, the clever games were huge. Quicks, Quinto, Lalo's and, and then of and then of and of and of new designs. Um, I've really had a lot of success uh, showing people uh, Project L, which is a uh, it, it went out of it was it was unavailable for a long time. It's just they just got a new print run out, and Project L is basically a uh, a deck building polynomial game. So you start with basically two little Tetris pieces. And you have goal cards, which are made up of adding these little polynomial pieces in, which allow you to get more pieces, which allow you to build larger polynomial puzzles. And you score points based on the complexity of the polynomial puzzles that you complete. Interesting. Um, it is a br- brilliant little game. And it's one that we've been playing a lot of. I can reach back over here. So Project L. And I've never heard of that one. Yep. Nope. Terrific. That's a game that, uh, like I said, we've had a lot of, uh, we do, we do a, a big convention, which is a coding convention in January every year. Uh, and so we come in and just curate the open game library. So it's a great opportunity to put a lot of games on the table, see what people are attracted to. And Project L was by far the star of the show this past year. It was the one that people just couldn't, couldn't just played and played and played and it, it's a really clever. I'm really hoping they'll they'll get around to reprinting the expansions and and whatnot that was part of the Kickstarter, the original Kickstarter. But the base game is is, is at least somewhat available again, and it's a terrific, terrific game. I want to try to track that one down. Yeah, and 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 then beyond that, um, you know, we have the we have the uh, 2022 Spiel uh, Kinderspiel des Jahres winner uh, in our lineup, Minute Magic Mountain, which. For all of it being a you know a family game and certainly targeted that way, um, we have had so much fun playing that with hobby audience, uh, just by the nature of the game. So, uh, with just to kind of give you the the, the the thirty second description, you have a sloped channeled board 
uh, with some figures on them, both good witches and bad witches. And you have five marbles, which correspond to the colors of uh, space on this path that kind of winds down the winds down the hill to the bottom of the of the hill. And so each turn, you draw a marble out of the bag. You discuss amongst each other. It's a cooperative. Which of the six starting channels you're going to drop it down? And then when you drop that marble, if it hits a figure, good or bad, it moves to the next space, going down the hill of the color of the marble that that you're rolling. So it's that's it. I can exp- I've explained the entire game now in 30 seconds. You're ready to play. Um, and kids, for five-year-olds, it's great fun. You're rolling marbles down a hill. For you know, hobby gamers, if you want to approach this thing as kind of a hardcore logic gate risk and reward analysis, the game will reward you for that. And that's part of the reason I think we won the uh, you know that Kinderspiel is that it is a super engaging game, and the parts are great, and it's fun to roll marbles down a hill. But the game is engineered, is manufactured in such a way and is structured in such a way that you can actually have these really interesting discussions about, you know, what's the risk of us rolling this marble here versus there and basically be rewarded for that. And, you know, despite the randomness of of the rolling of the marble, um, you know, planning ahead for that kind of stuff will reward you in the end and you will do better as a player if you do that. So. It's a, you know, and that's a 10, 15 minute game. You can put that on a table and ever, no, who doesn't love rolling marbles down a hill? So nice. Well, congratulations on the win. That's huge. It is. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, I, I, I had a very, you know, I worked with the English rules on this one and, and, and marketing is really much my involvement, but, uh, uh, you know, that, that means that I have, I have now, uh, I've have, I have a, a Kinderspiel and I have a, a Kennerspiel on my resume. Uh, so now I just got to figure out a way of getting on a team with the Spiel the Yaris winner, and I'll have the trifecta, and that'd be that'd be kind of cool. So yeah, that'd be awesome. I, I was, I was, I was always proud that there was one point in time where my name was in the rule books of Catan, Agricola, and Munchkin, and uh, you know if you can, which is a it's a pretty good spread, and so you know this is I think now this is the next unattainable trifecta would be. Uh, uh, a, a spiel, a Kenner, and a, and a Kinder. So, what was the we'll uh, what was the other one? The Kenner. Uh, the the Kenner spiel was I was part of the team uh, when Lookout won the one for Isle of Sky. Isle of Sky. And uh, if you go back and look at the ceremony for that, I was actually in Berlin for that, uh, or, or in, in Berlin or Hamburg. Anyway, I was there for the ceremony, and so there's there's like the first half of the pictures was just you know it's the it's the designers and it's lookout team, and then at some point they coaxed me on stage, and I'm there looking very awkwardly. It's like, uh, am I really supposed to be here? Am I supposed to, you know? And and and, and you know my, my one big my one big thing on that game was I ended up naming it. It was the uh, whatever the, the I don't remember what thematically we were kicking around, but uh, for some reason. Isle of Sky is, 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 was a proposal I had put on the table with the whole clans and, and all of that. And, uh, that, that seemed to be the one that stuck. So, um, you know, small, small involvements, but, uh, it's still, uh, still takes some pride in that, which is good. And you should. So we've talked about short games, long games. How about a hidden gem, a game that you don't think gets enough of credit? I mean, I guess kind of Pompeii and Project L both kind of did that as well. (laughs) There are so many games right now that that I think, um, and even some popular games that 
I, I think, you know, you, you can look at games through sort of the player's eyes. You can look at games through a designer or a developer's eyes and see two very different games sometimes. So, um, you know, I, I've been, you know, for the last few years, I will tell anybody who I can, I can who, who I can pin down, you know, do the, the, the sir, this is a Wendy's thing. Um, about uh, Raiders of the Lost Sea, which, which as good a game as everybody recognizes it is, I'm not sure people recognize the brilliance of that design and what a sea change that thing represents. Uh, certainly to me in the way that I look at, at mecha- mechanisms sometimes, because you know we've got this whole world of, of worker placement games, and most of them work off that same principle. I have it. I have a limited number of workers, so I can only do this many things. I can put a worker out on a spot, which means someone else doesn't have it, or it's limited access, whatever that might be. And and Raiders of the Lost Sea brilliantly put takes that idea of worker placement and turns it on its head a little bit and says, "Hey, you can go to any space you want." And all we're going to do is say you can't maybe do the, the thing in the right order that you want them to do because you'll have to pull a piece off in order to put a piece down. And just that, just opening up that universe of go anywhere you want, but it's got to be empty. And maybe it's not, it's, it's full right now and you can pull it off so it can be empty for your placement, but you're going to have to do that. You know, I, I just, I found that to be such a fascinating expansion of what a worker placement mechanism can be and an interesting exercise to do to take a mechanism that everyone kind of says well this is the way the mechanism works and can you drill down to make it half the mechanism work as as a whole as it were which is kind of where you know in the case of Raiders of the Lost Sea you've thrown away the whole well you can only go where somebody you know where you only go to an empty space and you're limited by the the, the number of, of pieces you have. Well, you always are limited. In this case, you only have two actions you can take, but go anywhere. Just may not be able to do them in the order you want. And that's still enough of a decision and enough of a, of a tension point to make that game just brilliant. So, you know, that's a game that, that again, I don't think, I don't think anyone's going to, to say that, you know, Raiders of the Lost Sea flew under anybody's radar, but from a game design standpoint, it's certainly something that, you know, I'm fascinated by. And, and of course, and and I and as and as and I almost and I certainly don't want to put down somebody who is as good a designer as Friedman Frieza, but I sometimes I sometimes wonder if he is making games for game designers now, uh, as opposed to the general public, because so many of the things that he puts out I find just fascinating, and I don't understand why they're not selling you know hundreds of thousands of copies. Um, and and certainly things you know his his uh, his uh, fables series the or the F series where he's he's kind of saying here's a deck of cards don't touch them and we're gonna play this game and the game all the all the rules are in as part of the game all the game is gonna be is gonna be explained to you as we play the game when you need to know it and as a as a game design exercise it's brilliant looking at the way the, those things roll out and kind of teach a game and then expand the game and expand the game and suddenly halfway through the deck you're playing a really interesting elaborate game that you know you were taught by the game as you played the game uh, you know you look at something that he you know things that he's done like 504 which you know, as, as a developer, so 504 was a game he did that's literally a flip book game. 
So you had nine mechanisms and nine primary goals and nine secondary goals. And to start the game, you would do the flip book to pick a random random one of each of those things, pull out the component kit you need to play it, and play that game. So ultimately, there were 504 game variants in that box that were all just, this is going to be a... This is going to be a flip, 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 flip economic game, flip, 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 flip with worker payment, flip, 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 and secondary goal is going to be set collection. And you pull out the components for that, for whatever whatever 187 was, and you played 187. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, Fridman Freeze's stuff is just just a joy to look at if you, are, if you have interest in game design, because his stuff... His stuff is just so out there and so brilliant, oftentimes. And and uh, you know, I just I just wish I wish his his sales reflected what I think is as his brilliance. So. He's also behind Power Grid, right? Yeah. So so he's got you know he's he's getting the royalty checks every every month, and that's good. You know, we, we want him to we want him to live comfortably, but I'd also like him. You know, he's just one of those as a game designer, he's amazing. He had that weird. That deck of cards where you're trying to get rid of them all. Again, it was the F series. I can't remember what it was called. Where you're trying to get rid of all the cards of numbers or a certain order. Uh, yeah, where you where if you took a trick or you took the skunk, um, yeah. you would have to sit out around and wait for it to go around. Yeah, it's you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he, he has Friday. a lot of stuff, and it's yeah, and a lot of it's a Friday copycat. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a, he has an amazing body of work, uh, much of which kind of flies under a lot of people's radar. <laughs> so when you're playing a game that has colors like Power Grid, uh, is there a certain color that you prefer to be? Oh, I've had that drilled out of me a long time ago. <laughs> I tend, I know if I, if I have a choice, I tend to gravitate towards black or blue. Um, I've played a lot of yellow, um, you know, and, and, and I, I've seen, you know, there's, there's a personality test that kicked around a while back, which was like, you know, if you choose red, that means you are impatient and impulsive. And gr- you play green, yeah, aggressive. Cool and collected. If you play yellow, you chose last. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I play a lot of yellow, you know, <laughs> that's the color that's there. That's what you're playing. If you're yellow, but, uh, you clearly did not choose yeah. color. You clearly have made poor life choices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Kickstarter, you said you had a Kickstarter that just showed up. So do you are you an active backer on Kickstarter? I am, um, especially through the pandemic. It was a way for me to you know kind of have things brought to my house, which was nice. <laughs> um, I, I tend to not, I tend to... Uh, shy away from uh, stuff that's kind of miniatures heavy. I'm not a miniatures guy at all. Yep, me either. And I particularly am not a fan of games that kind of bloat their price and their footprint on a table simply for the sake of having miniatures. Um, I find that to be very frustrating, uh, you know, especially for or as many years as I've worked to bring, you know, to find to to make games accessible. And accessibility means uh, an appropriate uh, appropriate tabletop footprint. It means a price point that can be attractive, um, that that will attract people to it. And I think 
one of the one of the issues it's one of the both the features and the bugs of kickstarter is that you get this chance to make the game you have in your head which is all of these miniatures and fabulous pieces and oversized bits and all of that and suddenly you have people trying to make the case that a $140 game is a gateway game and it's not and it never will be because $140 by definition is not a gateway game is not a game you can play it with other people and they'll be excited to play it and perhaps encounter it but they are not especially for people that are not familiar with games um are going to have zero interest in a $140 game and that's the nature of the beast you know things like gloomhaven notwithstanding because Gloomhaven, I think, you know, hit kind of a really interesting sweet spot between role-playing and, you know, people that had that nostalgia. And, and certainly I think miniatures there do have a little bit of a place as it does in, in a lot of role-playing adventure, adventuring. And that's kind of a thing that, you know, really as a visual tool can be a really useful thing. But um, for the most part, I'm doing a lot of tried and true stuff, things that either have already been out in the marketplace and I'm getting in on a second edition or it's a designer, you know, that I'm familiar with, or a company that I particularly like, um, you know. And so I, I, you know, I'm backing probably anywhere between, you know, six to ten big projects a year, and, and a little slush fund <laughs> if something comes along. You know, a friend of mine is doing a twenty dollars something or another, and I can, I can throw off that. That's a, that's a good thing as well. But I certainly don't see it as a, as an evil. I think that you know we've had this really amazing. Uh, burst of of energy and ideas and and some amazing looking games. Um, my my fears mostly uh, lie into and there's a lot of people that are not learning the skills required to sell their games to a specialty toy sco- store and you know give them a reason to be able to put it in front of that entirely new entire yeah. you know very large audience and are just content with selling you know x thousand to the hobby market and moving on to something else yeah um that's yeah i mean that's a, that's a lot to unpack there because there's a i see a lot of people going to kickstarter and because i also do board game reviews for another website and stuff and I'll, if it's a Kickstarter, I'll quickly glance at the Kickstarter, and if I feel like, because I only get paid, you know, paid, the production copy. So right. if I go to your Kickstarter page and I can tell you have no chance at funding because you've got a, a $25 game and a $100,000 goal, I'm like, I'm not going to waste my time doing it, and your game may be awesome, but you need to rethink that stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of people do that. And then, yeah, I, I could definitely use help getting into the hobby game stores more than we do. Uh, we just ordered a second round of our game. Um, of course, I don't think we're supposed to have it until like September. Thank you, COVID. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's there is a lot that. I think Kickstarter is good for, and I think there's a lot of, of bad. And I wish I only backed eight or ten a year, but um, so does my wife, I'm sure. Um, yeah. La- last week I had two days or three days in a row I had a Kickstarter show up, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I was like, Ugh, yeah, 
Whoops. <laughs> well, and there's always that awkward conversation. So, for example, uh, somewhere here on the table, I think I have my uh, my uh, Dow of uh, of uh, Dork Tower, my Dork Tower collection. Ah. That was a Kickstarter I backed in 2018. And so, you know, you had that conversation of, no, no, I didn't, you know, this, this, this is four years ago. I, yeah. you know, this is, this is money that was from four years ago. This is not, you know, <laughs> I did not go out and spend a whole bunch of money this week. It was different. Well, different I, I spent a lot of money and backed a lot, but I spent a lot of it at $3 at a time on the print and plays. So I feel pretty mm. good. I feel good about that. But then I look at all the print and play files on my hard drive. I haven't printed and I'm like, mm, maybe I should not back so many. Do you remember what your first Kickstarter was that you backed? No, <laughs> I could probably look it up fairly. I, I literally, literally, you know, the, the, the before, uh, there's an awful lot of stuff about the before time that has just been I, I, shrouded. I and, just loved how you thought about it for a second off camera. No, yeah, yeah, no, 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 <laughs> it's not a thing. No, that, that, um, that brain cell's gone. Yep. <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, <laughs> I'm firing up the uh, <laughs> my, my my backed project. Yeah, like the deep in thought. I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm going. I don't know. Mm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's certainly you know I've got the super backer tag, so you know obviously yeah. I've done you know I've got I've got you know it's it's certainly you know a, a quite a few of them going back, but. um well, I think the the new one out right now that cracks me up is that three hundred and fifty dollar copy of uh, Suro. You seen that one? Yeah, I, I have. Uh, <laughs> I I bought the I bought the the deluxe version before this became the deluxe version, <laughs> um, and I don't think I've and and as much as I like the game and as and I've played it several times, um, you know, I didn't pull out the deluxe edition, so. There's no chance that I'm going to pull out a $350 version casually anywhere. Uh, so it, to me, it just becomes it, that that's going to be a dust collector, and, and there's just mm. no point in me kind of digging down that road. If I am to believe um, my Kickstarter history here, Uh-oh. the very first thing I backed is visible behind me. Is it ogre? Your yes. Big, yeah, you big ogre. The ogre, the ogre designer edition, which uh, if if the the date is correct, it's I've got a I've got the one that's right above it is t- the Tahiti board game I backed, which says uh, it's a message from 2012. So yeah, that sounds about right. It was it, that's what got me into Kickstarter was the <laughs> Ogre Deluxe Edition. So you weren't working for Steve Jackson in 2012 then, huh? I was not. No, that's just <laughs> ogre. Ogre is another one of those those games, though, that um, is so brilliant. And and to this day, still, you know, for asymmetrical two person combat that can be played in under an hour and really does create an amazing tension storyline. You know, the idea that okay, you get any of the stuff that you want, whatever mix of it, wherever you need to put it, go for it, put it down. This player gets this one piece. Boom. Rules of the game. Big piece gets to that side of the board. You lose. You blow up big piece. You win. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Congratulations. We're playing ogre. And I, and, and, and it, it is, it's a game that I, you know, I, I teach kids when I was doing the Steve Jackson stuff. And, 
they instantly get it. And they, you know, it, that idea, and you can give the kid the ogre and he knows what to do. Just fire all your guns every turn at anything that's in range. And, you know, the adults trying to figure out, oh, I can get him and how it's arranged. Maybe I can move this stuff around. And the kid's just like, dooga, 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 dooga. <laughs> you know, next turn. Great. It's, it's a terrific design. And it's one of those, it's still, you know, so I was, I, I couldn't, I couldn't back that fast enough because, I just remember being really enthusiastic about it, and and even, and that was 2012. So a 237 dollar, which I think was what I what, what that number. That was a huge number for Kickstarter back then. That's still a big number now, but even but yeah, ten years ago, that's you're betting the farm on that one. Yep. Wow. No, I I haven't backed anything. I haven't backed anything that's broke a hundred dollars. No, I've wow. backed out. I've no. backed a lot of things, but none of them that, have, that uh, add up to multiple hundreds of dollars. But I've not backed a single item over $100 yet. No, I know there's a couple of 250s in there. We went all in uh, when I was with when I was with Steve Jackson Games. I went all in on the uh, the Munchkin, the Simon Munchkin game, um, mostly because my wife was thinking that uh, she might actually. Uh, start doing miniatures painting and those figures from that game are just those John Kavalik figures are just brilliant. And so it'd be a fun way to start. Um, she painted them? There's at least the one, which one? Did she paint them? She hasn't yet. No, <laughs> <laughs> they're all sitting in a blue box over here, which is, I'm sure the way most Simon games, work. <laughs> you go all in and you put them in a box and you try to find a place in your house to put your, your six foot's worth of rock. And that's about the end of it. So <laughs> sorry, Simon. <laughs> uh, well, I will tell you, I got their, uh, I don't know where it is right now, but I got their Godfather game. Whew, if I was in a miniature painting, I'd paint those suckers up. But but I, I I don't paint miniatures, so I, I keep trying. I keep I, a lot of my friends are like, you got to get into it. I'm like, no man, because then I'll really get into it. And I don't really want to get into that. <laughs> so back a, a long time ago, Steve Jackson Games got into doing metal miniatures, and at the time I was volunteering for Steve Jackson Games, and I was like, this is great. This is my chance to really get into miniatures painting because I won't have to worry about flesh tones and faces and all. You know, it's 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 mechanized stuff it's it's you know i can do some dry brushing and whatnot this will be cool i can do this i can learn this this is great so i bought a bunch of them with my you know with my volunteer points uh you know and so i had this amazing amazing mm. ogre army and so one day I, i've got all my paint out i've got my paintbrushes, my water and everything i'm all ready to go and all that and about a half an hour later i'm out front on a piece of newspaper going this is my red team this is my blue team. So I'm done. I'm out. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> oh, no That's it. I, 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 for whatever reason, I do not have the painting bug. If I never paint a piece in the rest of my life, I am going to be just fine with that. So <laughs> no interest at all. Uh, I, I just, I'm afraid to, to get into it. I'm afraid I'll get into it and really like it. And then I'll be buying a bunch of weird minis and, I don't have room to put all these weird minis. I don't have room for the games I have. I don't need to buy more games and have more minis. And then I got to find yeah. a sort of sort of the paint. I'm like, no, nah, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it sort of sounds like me and, and trading card or living card games. It's like, yeah, I, I hope I don't like this game because, you know. Yeah. Well, I like Star Realms because it doesn't, it's not the collectible card game. And, you know, everybody, it's, 
you buy the decks, you can buy the add-on, the add-on decks, and add more stuff into it, and the starter hands, and whatever you want to do with Star Realms, and yep. And and for me, that you know, that same itch is scratched by um, by Keyforge, and now hopefully Soulforge Fusion, which is here's a deck, play it. You know, no deck building, and as long you know, and I've got like one of the ranking programs, so I can I can actually start and say, oh, you want to play, you know, Keyforge? Here, here's a couple of seventy percent decks or eighty percent decks, or you know, game, you know, things that are going to be fairly evenly matched, and let's play Soulforge. I'm I'm fascinated by the idea that it's kind of Keyforge, but now it's two half decks that you combine, so. I can take, you know, so if this half deck isn't working with this half deck, I can just find another half deck maybe and try something different and kind of look at some synergies. But, you know, here, but even there in that instance, you know, I think I bought, I thought I bought the, the regular intro pack and the, and seven of the boosters. So I have basically eight of each, eight half decks from each faction, which I can mix and match however I want. And I'm probably about done. You know, for I, I know that they're going to want me to be part of organized play and and all of that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, for me, that's enough for me to to teach the game, to learn the game, to understand the mechanisms behind the game. And that's, you know, I am so cold to the new that that's literally all I need out of that game is going to be a few plays uh, and an understanding of kind of the, intri- you know, the intricacies of how the, the synergies work. And I'll be fascinated by that. And then I will be done with it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong yeah, with that and at part all. Of the, part of the fun of me being at conventions and teaching games is it's me being able to relive first plays. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy demoing games so much is that I get first play experience, even if it's secondhand, by teaching this game again and again and again, and it fires that same you know, that same pleasure part of my brain that playing a game for the first time gives me. So, you know, it, it's, it's a good, good, whatever, whatever mental twist makes that happen for me. Uh, it has served me well in my, in my career to, to enjoy demos as sort of a, a surrogate first play. Awesome. I mean, that, that's great. I mean, that's all, you know, like I said, I'm bringing at my office now, bringing games to new people that aren't gamers and seeing how they react to different kinds of games and different style of gaming. And, you know, I enjoy teaching games to people a lot. I enjoy bringing people together to play games and kind of living vicariously through them. Like, like you said, watching them learn a game for the first time and seeing that light bulb turn on after the first game of no thanks is always one of my favorite looks on their faces. Oh, having a whole bunch of cards is not good. No, yeah. <laughs> and having the thirty-five is not bad. You know, if you get the thirty-five down to the thirty-two, you're only scoring thirty-two points, and you've probably got a stack of tokens. You know, and it's it's fun to watch them. Another one of my favorite games to watch like that is Seven Wonders, because the first time they play Seven Wonders, they just they they usually win by accident, and then the second right. time like oh i got it and then they get destroyed and then the third time they're like oh i gotta be more balanced Uh, not really you just need to pick about two different ways to score points and go all in on those two and you know by about game four or five they're like oh i love this game and i'm like i know (laughs) 
we have a we have a game in our line in the Amigo line called Carnival of Monsters. Uh, it's a Richard Garfield design, and it is magic crossed with Seven Wonders. So basically, you have land cards. You play out land cards, which give you the power to capture monsters and add them to your score pile. Um, the really sneaky part about that game is that there's a, a there's an economic system because you either play a card, but if you can't play a card or don't want to play a card or want to defer playing a card, you pay a buck and you put it in a pile over here. And any point during the game, you can pull a card out of that pile and play it. Simple enough. All good. Trick of the game. You only get four bucks at the start of the game and there's no other mechanism for you to get money. That's a default mechanism. So four cards in, you're out of money, and now you reach the end of a round. So if you think about think about Seven Wonders, those last one or two cards that are passed to you that are useless, it's like, oh, all right, I'll play it. What the, you know, doesn't matter. Why not? Um, in Carnival of Monsters, Richard Garfield says, oh, you just have to play it. Oh, just you can't play it. So you got to put it over here in this pile, and you got to pay a buck to do it. And suddenly you've got to start paying attention to the things that are in the game that give you money. And now you've got this whole economic system bubbling under the surface <laughs> to make sure you have enough money to do what you need to do just to cover the things that, you know, the garbage cards at the end of a round, let alone things you might actually be wanting to do. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting when people play that game and go, Oh, it's magic. Seven wonders. I just, I get lots of land. I get lots of monsters. Great. And then the money crashes on them and it's like, what did I do? And you explain to them the way money works and it's like, oh, and maybe their third or fourth game, they'll start getting the hang of it. And to me, that's that's a, the mark of a good game is just being able to keep playing it, keep playing it, keep keep learning new ways to, to play it. Um, yep. But yeah, I, I remember Carnival Monsters uh, come across the uh, Herald, the was it Envoy? Mm. When they came, when you guys came across the Envoy with that, so yep, I'll have to look into that one a little more. So looks like it can be played in an hour, so that's definitely right up my alley. Anything First game's going to take you a little longer, but once once everybody knows what's they're, what, sure. what to, what they're doing, it's simultaneous turns. So yeah. you know, like like a game of Seven Wonders. Once you get comfortable with the symbols and and the relationships, you know, the game speeds up quite a bit. Excellent, excellent. Well, Alex, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today. And uh, man, you've had you have so much knowledge of the gaming industry and uh, so many. So many great stories. Oh man, it's it's a lot of fun. It's you know, there's there's a there's the part of you that says that uh, you know, I lucky I get to, I I literally do get to travel around the world and play games with people, and that's wonderful. And then there's the other part of your brain that says, well, you know, you better get up and do what you can every day because I'm broken. I can't go back to a cubicle. This is, <laughs> this is it. You know, got to make this work for the rest of my life. So yeah, you know, time to get to work. No, that's awesome. I mean, it's been, you know, I've had a lot of fun with this podcast and with my own board game and now doing the conventions and it's just such a great industry. I, you know, everybody in it's so nice and approachable, which has been the best part. Um, and just having a good old time with the industry as a whole. I, I just can't, I can't get enough of it. Uh, my wife thinks I have too much of the industry in the house. I, I beg to differ. I just need a room for it all. That's all. I mean, the kids don't need a bedroom, do they? You know, you just stack the, you know, stack the games up, make them level, put a blanket, you know, 
little mattress over the yeah. top, you'll be fine. I mean, they won't even know they're there. <laughs> yeah. How if people want to reach out to you? Yeah. So if people want to reach out to you, Alex, how can they do that? Uh, so you can certainly reach me through the Amigo Games, uh, you know, through that way. I'm I'm on Facebook. Uh, it was weird when I was filling out your form. I don't twit, uh, but I do. Uh, I do have an internet movie database entry of, of all things. So, um, you know, and, and it's not just one thing. I mean, I'm in a couple of movies. I've got writer and director credits for, for the, you know, the old, uh, uh, the, the old podcast we used to do with Mayfair games. So, uh, you know, you usually find me in the weirdest places and that's, that's uh, probably the way that works. That's hilarious. Well, and as usual, if you want to reach out to me, it's facebook.com slash groups slash you lunch and board game. My website's elunchaboardgame.com, and you can always email me at elunchaboardgame at gmail.com. And remember, board games build bridges. They do. When you're gaming, why not be comfy? Go over to supportplayer.org. Click on the cards, pieces, and dice to get some merch. These t-shirts are some of the most comfortable I have ever worn. That's supportplayer.org, and there's a link on eatlunchandboardgame.com.